Matthew chapter 6, back in verse 1, Jesus tells us, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people to be seen by them. And then he gives us three areas that are especially tempting to us to try to impress people. And that's in our giving. And in second area we started looking at last week is in our praying. We're back to that. And so verse 2 says thus, when you give, Jesus gives instruction. And now verse 5, we looked at verse 5 to 8 last week. This morning we'll look at verse 9. So reread verse 5 again if you would. Not just giving, that's not the only potential area where pride could come into a good thing. Pride can come into a good thing even, verse 5, when you pray. And when you pray, you so hear this again fresh. I like to rehearse truths that the Lord's showing me. So hear this as if this were the message today, even though it's not the primary message. Hear it again. And when you pray, you do pray, right? When you pray. You must not be like the hypocrites, the pretender, actors, fakers. What do they do? They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Nothing in that sentence thus far is the problem. Here's the problem. They do that, the standing, praying in the synagogues, street corners, that they may be seen by others. That's what they love. They love to be seen by others. Jesus says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Have received already. They've been paid in full. They got heard by people. They got seen by people. People think they're really great. They got what they were after. Their prayers are not going to be received. Verse 6, don't do that. Do this. But when you pray, so Christian, hear that this morning. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door. This could be literal. It could be symbolic, but it might need to be literal. And when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And by the way, once you get in there, don't waste it. Pray, verse 6, and pray to your Father, to someone, to the Father who is in secret. Jesus says he's in there. Again, there may be a Christian here this morning. You've never really learned how to pray. Can you give us any tips that will help us? I'm going to tell you the main tip. If you're a Christian, you get in there and get alone, get quiet, get still, and start talking to God. Take time to meditate upon him today, and that's going to be the first that's going to be the, the theme of this whole message today. You, best way to learn how to pray is just get in there and start praying. There's no like magic sermon that's going to make you good at prayer. You've got to do it. And your father, Jesus says at the end of verse 6, who sees in secret will reward you. And the reward is a conversation with him. That's the reward. Now verse 7, back a little bit to the negative side. Jesus says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. Don't go through the motions like who? As the Gentiles the unbelievers, the heathen, the pagan. Why do they do this? At least they're sincere, but they're wrong. The Bible says, Jesus says, they think they will be heard for their many words. Surely God's going to notice all that I'm saying. I'm saying so much. I do this so much. Look how many minutes I've been in here. Look how faithful I am to do this. Surely God is receiving it. No, that's not why God receives prayers. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So verse 9 so he goes negative, positive, negative, back to positive. Pray then like this. Like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Those eight words will have our attention today. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Pray like this. He continues. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. 
and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Last week I was not being disrespectful, but I alluded to Jesus being like a coach in prayer. I've done some coaching myself uh, on quite a, quite a few years, probably 15 years of coaching. I will tell you there's some folks in our church that have been on my teams, uh, maybe have seen me coach many times. You would have heard statements like this. Don't make that pass. Don't shoot that shot. That's not how you set a screen. That's not how we run this play. Come on, that's not the guy you're supposed to be guarding. Jeff, did you really coach like that? Yes. Coaches have to point out the negative things. I did that quite a bit. What if that was all I did? That's not how you shoot a screen. That's not how you dribble. That's not the shot we want. Negative, negative, negative. You'd probably begin to think, I wonder if he ever tells them how they are supposed to run the play. I wonder if he ever says, that's the shot we want. Not that one, that's the shot. That's the person the pass was supposed to go to. That's a defensive stance. He tells them that's not a defensive stance. That's not how you box out. Here's Jesus says, don't pray like this, but pray like this. So real quickly, let's rehearse. Christian, Jesus is saying, make closet prayer a priority of your life. And then once you get there, don't go through the motions. Don't pray to be seen. Literally talk to God on purpose. I find it amazing that so many people, I'm not saying anyone here, it could be someone here, prays verses 9 through 13. Actually, I could use the word they say verses 9 through 13 just reciting it, or almost as a recantation, totally forgetting what Jesus says in verse 8. Notice again verse 8. Verse 7, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases, empty, meaningless repetition. Don't do that. And so many people get no further than verse 9, and they've already forgot everything that Jesus says in verse 7 because they just literally their prayer life may consist of reciting verses 9 through 13. If Jesus intended, so some people literally, they think, oh yes, this is what you're supposed to pray. Word for word, go through the Lord's, what they call the Lord's Prayer, and now you've prayed. If this was only meant to be recited, and like this covers it all, then closet prayer last, I timed it this morning, about 22 seconds. Get along, get quiet, get still, why? Well, you just need about 22 seconds, go through that. This is a model prayer. Each part of this is something to springboard. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, the order matters, the wording matters, but this is not just to be said. Jesus doesn't begin verse 9, say this. He says, pray then like this. Some call it the Lord's Prayer. Most of the good theologians do not call it that. Jesus would not have had to pray this prayer for obvious reasons out of verse 12. Jesus doesn't pray this. Some have called it the disciples' prayer. I kind of lean either toward that or toward the Lord's model prayer for his disciples putting all that thought together. So let's learn from this. What are we to learn? So here we go. You ready? Christ is coaching us. All right, Lord. I've gotten alone. I've gotten quiet. It's quiet around me. I'm by myself. I'm not moving around. I'm still. It's silent. I have solitude. Now what? Now what? 
I want to focus on verse 9 because there's a reason it's put first. And I think this is what Jesus is teaching us. You ready? Biblical prayer must begin with a focus on God. Biblical prayer must begin. You say, Jeff, this sounds really, really simple. The message today is simple. But we don't practice it. Not all of us practice this. Some who practice it, we oft forget. We jump into prayer, and what do we do? We bring our interest, like that's the goal of prayer. And what Jesus is trying to teach us is your interests have their place, but they are not the main goal of prayer. Prayer must begin with a focus on the person of God. Don't blow off the order of Christ. Notice, a proper view of God precedes our interest. I'm going to give you three reasons. Number one, because it's right. It is right not to be crude, not to pull something from the natural realm as though it's the only thing that applies in the spiritual realm. But I will tell you this, even the dogs note the order when it's time to eat. The alpha dog eats first. Everybody else eats after the alpha dog. Or they get their place. They know he gets the best of the best. So Christians, when it's time to pray, so many of us do not learn this. We, don't, we get the order wrong, if we ever did it at all, but... God comes first. Why? It's the right thing. But not only is it the right thing, but as we focus on God at the beginning of our prayers, that stirs up and builds a couple of very important things. Number one, it builds humility. It puts Him in His right place. It puts us in our right place. But it doesn't stop there. Focusing on God builds faith. I'm going to ask for some things that are important in my world and in our world. This prayer is from our Father. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Lead us. So it's all of us, these have their place, but God, we're going to give you your place first of all. You are the most important thing. And so how are we going to build this faith? We're going to focus, and I even use this idea, rehearsing the attributes of God. Lord, I'm praising you because you are unchanging. You are eternal. You're omnipresent. You're omniscient. You're omnipotent. You, you're, you're holy. There's no one else like you. The more I rehearse these things, all of a sudden, my things that I need to pray about are being put into perspective and brought down to proper size. My faith's being built, my humility's being built, and I'm in a right order. So with verse 9 in our sights today, let's notice four thoughts. The first two are the longest of these four thoughts, if you would. Number one, God is the Father of some. God is the Father of of some. Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. We're going to look at an invocation, who we're praying to. Eventually we're going to look at three requests, one of those today, three requests that have to do with the Father. He is first, kind of like the Ten Commandments. The first four have to do with our relationship with God, and then it gets to us after that. Things have to be right here before we can get to us. Same thing in, in the Lord's model prayer. Things need to be focused on God and on things that we desire that have to do with God. So we're going to talk about His name, His kingdom, His will, and then we will get to things that deal with us. But this morning we're focusing on, first, this invocation. God is the father of some. That's important. We could almost say it this way. Our father, so we're praying our father, but not their father. Say, Jeff, this sounds kind of mean, a little bit narrow. Guys, this is just being biblical. The Bible is clear that God is the creator of all things and all people, but he is not the father of all people in the spiritual sense 
of the New Testament. A lot of people believe, some theologians have tried to narrow down Christianity as this, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. And to that we say that is not the truth. We don't believe in this completely full brotherhood of man and fatherhood of God over all. No, God is the creator of all and he is the father of some. I want to propose to you today that this model prayer given by Christ can only be prayed, truly be prayed, by Christians. That means that there's a chance that there are some here this morning that may say these words and they may even be sincere, but they're like the Gentiles back in verse 7. And they may try to talk to the Lord, but they don't have the qualifications. They don't meet the qualifications of this prayer. They are disqualified from praying this prayer. Years ago, I used to teach a seventh grade Bible class that was given by a group out of Rocky Mountain, North Carolina called Positive Action for Christ. I love that material. It was called Dynamic Christian Living. It was an awesome curriculum because it covered so many things. I pulled it out the other day because I knew they had a few thoughts along these lines as they covered the Lord's model prayer. They offered the following. They, say, they write, only a Christian. So here, Jeff, you just said you think only Christians can pray. Only Christians could pray this prayer. Why would you say that? Because only a Christian can properly address God as his heavenly father. Only a Christian truly desires to see God's name sanctified by everybody. Only a Christian really wants that. Only a Christian can pray this because only a Christian really longs for the kingdom of God to come. Why? Two reasons. Because when the kingdom of God comes, that's when Christ begins to reign in righteousness. They've not submitted to Christ. Why would they be praying for Christ to reign in righteousness? Secondly, it would be very foolish for an unsaved person, a non-Christian, to pray this prayer. Because why would you want the kingdom of God to start? Because that's when judgment is brought upon all of those who do not know God. It would be very foolish for them to pray. That person should be saying, God, do not let your kingdom come. Withhold the judgment and the righteous reign of Christ until I become a Christian. Go on and on, but they offer another one. Only a Christian truly desires God's will to be done. I mean, an unbeliever couldn't say, yeah, I want the will of God done on earth as it is in heaven. No, you don't, because the first thing that God wills for your life is that you would become a Christian. So that wouldn't make sense. Hold your spot. Would you go with me? John chapter 1. This is a passage. So if we're going to John chapter 1, join me over there. This is a passage that I... Man, I, I just wish every person in the world would get a hold of and hear and digest. We're going to hit it quickly. We're not hitting it deeply today. But it goes along with this idea, God is the father of some. God is the father of some. John chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 11 and 12. And the context here is there's this word of God. And we know the word of God is called God. He's the creator. And in verse 14, the word will become flesh. So we know that this is the story of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. But he's called the Word. Look what John, one of his disciples, writes in verse 11. Watch that. He came to his own. So here's God, the one who created everything. He came to his own, which the word own there means. He came, literally as a human being, to his own domain. Verse 11. He came to his own and his own people. That means even more specifically, the Jews of his time. And frankly, most of the Jews, not all, but most of the Jews since then, and many of the world with them, notice verse 11 again, he came to his own, his own domain, that he created, he's literally walking around in this world as a human being, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. They don't recognize him. 
So the Jews rejected him. That's why he's going to end up being killed and, and crucified on a cross. But verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, he comes to his own domain. His people do not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. That phrase explains the prior phrase. Read it again. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, now I'm going to skip the phrase. To all who did receive him, he gave the right, the power, the authority, notice this word, to become children of God. To become children of God. Write this thought down. The Bible describes all of mankind, everyone in this room, we're all one race. So the color of your skin doesn't make you superior. Your, you know, your status, your intelligence, your appearance, bank account, resources, all of those things. We are all one race, but the Bible is very clear there are two families. One race, two families. This passage and others are very clear also. No one is born a child of God. They become a child of God. How does a person become a child of God? The text says most people and his own people did not receive him, but those who do receive him have the right to become. They're not born that way. They become the children of God. Become. What does that mean to receive? It means to believe. Guys, I'm not going to dig in here, but I want you to take a moment. Can you in your heart say, there was a time I became a child of God. I was born in this world a sinner away from God, going further away from God, but now I am a child of God, drawing closer and closer to the Father because I have done what verse 12 says. Can you say that honestly? What does it mean to receive? Well, verse 12 also says they believe in His name. To receive Christ is to believe in His name. Those are the ones who become the children of God. Ask the Jews of His day, do you believe He's the Son of God? No, they do not. We do not receive that, nor do we receive Him. Do you believe that He is the Christ? Do you believe He's the Messiah? Do you believe He's the only Savior? Do you think He says He's the only way to heaven? Do you believe that? They would say, no, 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 no. He needs to die for even claiming to believe that. 1979, to those things, I said, by God's grace, He gave me the faith to do this, but I said, yes, 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 and I became a child of God. Yes, He is the one and only Son of God. Yes, He is the Lord. Yes, He is the only Savior. Yes, He's the Christ, the Messiah. Have you ever had that day where in your heart you found Him so believable that when He says, I will give you salvation for free because my death on the cross, have you had a time in your life where you said, yes, I believe you, I believe in your name, I receive that. If you haven't, you're not in the family of God. Go if you would, and we can leave there for a moment. Go to Romans chapter 8. I want to review something we looked at last year, maybe over a year ago, well over a year ago. Romans chapter 8. We're going to read verses 14 to 17. To save time, I did not go all the way back and keep getting context because the further I go back to get some context, I have to give you some context on the context, and it becomes... We can't read all of chapter 8, okay? So here's where we're at. You ready? If you have your Bible open, you can see it's not on the screen. You'll find verse 9. Look at it. You, he's talking to Christians, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. So there's those who are in the flesh. They're just dying. They're investing everything into something that is dying. They're going to spend eternity away from God. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. 
Oh, how come we're different? There's this two-family thing. If, in fact, he says, here's how you know that you're in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. You're not in the family. Literally what, what the text is saying, this is the Bible, all true Christians have God's Spirit living in them. In fact, verse 13 talks about the Spirit of God helps us defeat our sin. We couldn't do it. The Spirit of God helps us defeat our sin. All Christians have the Spirit. Now listen, He cannot be hidden. If you have the Spirit, He cannot be hidden. Verse 14, let's read to verse 17. The Bible says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Oh, I'm a child of God. I can pray, Matthew 6. Can you? All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. What does that mean? When God saved me, and if He has saved you, He did not save you out of a slavery to Satan and a slavery to sin. We just have to obey and that is fearful, and, and we always obey and have all the wrong consequences. God did not save you out of that only to bring you into a new bondage to a different but also cruel God who's going to take back His promises of eternal life. If you ever make Him mad enough, you make me mad enough, I'm going to take it back. No, no, no. God is not like that. God did not save you for that reason. He saved you for a reason. God loves you. God wants a relationship with you. God wants the best for you, Christian he will make it happen. He will make it happen. Verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. There's only one, one and only begotten Son of God, and that's Jesus the Christ. But we who've put our faith in Christ have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom? By this spirit. The Holy Spirit helps us. We cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. Holy Spirit, your spirit, they agree on something. Verse 16, they agree we are the children of God. And Paul now theologically concludes, if children, if this thing is real, if this relationship that God describes as Himself with the believer in Christ, this new relationship, if it is real, Paul says, if children, then heirs. What do you mean heirs? Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Very quickly, notice four things, one thing out of each verse. Number one, you see it in verse number 14? For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Who? All who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. First thought. God's true children can identify clear signs of the Holy Spirit. From verse 9, I learned this. All true Christians have the Holy Spirit. Verse number 14, we learn all true Christians can identify signs in their life that they have the Holy Spirit. And some would hear that and say, oh, you mean everybody has to speak in tongues? No, that's not what we're talking about. Now check yourself. I'm not going to have everybody answer out loud if this was Wednesday night. That's what we would do. 
This is so serious, guys, don't play, don't play games here. Most everyone here, if I were to say, raise your hand if you're a Christian, you know you're on your way to heaven. Most every hand here would go up. Check your heart. What are the signs and the indications? Because the Bible says those who are led by the Spirit of God, they're the sons of God. Oh, I'm a child of God. Are you really? What are the signs of the Spirit in your life? Don't tell me the ones you've heard preachers say. Go check your heart right now. These are the ones I know I have the Spirit because the Spirit does this in my life. I know it for a fact. What comes to your mind? Don't say it out loud. Just be honest with you. Now, you can play a game and lie. Oh, I remember this. He covered this last year. What are those? Scrap that. Check your heart. How do I know I have the Spirit? I wish I had a minute and we had a piece of paper and everybody would write. My personal experience and then we could share our answers. Do you have signs of the Spirit? What ones come to mind? Unfortunately, most of us would agree on this one, right? Oh, he convicts me. Raise your hand if that came to your mind. Would you raise your hand if that came to your mind? I know I had the Spirit. There's me before I was a Christian, and I'd feel bad. I'd feel really bad if I got caught or if I disappointed Mom. But there's this just whole other thing. It's just, the sin isn't that fun anymore. That's a good thing. Do you have that? I have that. Others, obviously from verse 14, we, can you say this? Jeff, it's hard to explain, but as I looked over my life, from the time that I believe that I got saved until now, I've not followed perfectly, but the Spirit has guided me. He guides me. Could you honestly say this? Jeff, there's some passages in this book, I'm telling you, I just don't get them. But the strangest thing, when I read this book, and I don't just like check boxes so I, that I can say that I've had my devotions. When I like read the Bible and slow down, and I, when I take this step, Holy Spirit, would you teach me today? I can't explain it. Stuff starts coming in my mind. This book starts making sense. When you're up there teaching, Sunday school teachers teaching, it makes sense. The Holy Spirit teaches me. If you're sitting there going, I never get anything out of my reading. I endure your messages, and I get nothing out of the curriculum or the Sunday school. You're probably not a Christian because the Holy Spirit teaches. He's the one who wrote it. He's the one who teaches. Check your heart. Can you honestly say, I am guided by the Spirit. I, I am empowered by the Spirit. I am convicted by the Spirit. Can you say this? Some of you thought of this. He comforts me. He's a comforter unlike anybody else. God's Spirit comforts. Some would say it's the strangest thing. I know it is real. He prompts me. Hey, hey, do that. I can't afford it. Just do it, okay. Or don't do that. Stop doing that. And sometimes it's, you've done that. Now you need to do this. Four thoughts. God's children can identify clear signs. Pretenders. What's some of those signs? I want to write some. They don't know. Verse 15, very quickly, here's the point really of this text, why I went there. God's true children have access to him. There's no doubt about it. Verse 15 says you did not. Paul's saying once you became a Christian, not only did you get the spirit, but you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption. 
The Spirit is capitalized. It's the Holy Spirit. He's the one who helps us be adopted. By whom the Holy Spirit helps us cry, Abba, Father. This book is written in Greek, but Paul, in writing of the, in the Greek language, pulls back from an Aramaic word because he wants to get something that, that they really couldn't get. What's he getting? This idea of Abba, Father, this strong familiarity, this strong bond between father and child. Do you have that? The Holy Spirit helps us realize, I have access to God. What, what, what the Bible's teaching is God's children have access to Him and they don't. They don't. They can get down, they can fold their hands and bow their head and stay there X amount of minutes. That's wonderful. But they don't have access. God's children do. CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, you cannot get a meeting with them. No one here today has the president's cell phone number. None of you have it. None of you could say, hey, I want to meet you at 6 o'clock tonight. We're going to grab some coffee. That'd be all right. But I'm telling you, his daughter and sons can get a hold of him, and he's available. Why? They're his children. God is much greater than a president or a king or an emperor. He's greater than all of them. He's much more exclusive. He's much more powerful than the Bible's trying to teach us. If you really are a child of God, you have access to God. Are you using it? Third thought comes out of verse 16. I'm just going to shoot straight with you here. God's true children know who they are. Jeff, where's that? Did you catch what I just said? God's true children, they know they are God's children. Yeah, I hope I'm on my way to heaven. Hey, if somebody ever asks me, uh, where will you go when you die? I'm going to heaven. Are you sure? Oh, I know it. You know what I hear when I ask people that sometimes? Well, I hope to go to heaven. Well, that's pitiful. I'm glad I'm not living with a hope so. Look at verse 16. But as, don't just read it and be informed. Let's put ourselves beside it. The Spirit, capital S, Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Guys, I'm going to tell you, this is not me. I'm not the only one in here. It's not that I'm special and unique among God's children. I'm telling you for a fact, that is reality in my world. I got saved when I was nine. I settled my security and was taught more about what the Bible says and about this eternal nature of this salvation. And I'm going to tell you, it, it may happen later. I'm not saying that a, a true Christian can never have doubt of their salvation. I'm not saying that. There's somebody sitting here this morning. You just said, that's me. You're saying that inside your head right now. That's me sometimes. I'm telling you, that is not normal. That is not my reality. From the time I've been 12 until today, I do not doubt my salvation. That is just not normal. The normal stance, the normal state for a Christian is assurance. We know who we are. There are others who think they are, and there are some who think they're not that are, but most who think they're not, yeah, the reason you don't think you're going to heaven, think you might be, is because you're not. The normal state is absolute assurance. So let me say this. If you're here, and you're like, I'm just not really sure I'm going to heaven. I struggle with it. Talk to us. Talk to us. I'll warn you. I'm going to ask you why you think you're going to heaven. And if you're just not sure, we need to talk about it. I mean, you, you get one shot. You get one shot at this life. Don't blow it. Don't let pride stop you. We need to make time to talk. The normal state is assurance. Lastly, very quickly, is out of verse 17. God's true children are genuine heirs to all that he has. We could even say it this way. They are the royals. 
I'm not talking about Kansas City's baseball team. I'm not talking about a family over in Britain or the Russians in the 1800s. I'm not talking about that. Do you know who the true royals are? God's kids. Do you know what that means? Though they are right now more powerful than us, than us, y'all know there are like real beings that if you would see them, you would be frightened by them, but there are angels that stand ready to protect and serve the king's kids, and they do it all the time, and we don't even know that it's happening. They, because I'm sure they understand what's happening here, they know we outrank them in the whole scheme of things. Right now, we're like that little, that little toddler that's running around the palace that's the king's kid that really outranks the other, but their tutors are, are, are over them and maybe tell them what to do and kind of stronger and, and seemingly for a moment outrank. But these beings, they're with us. They're on our side. They're following the orders of the Father. Here's what that tells me. I'm moving on. You better not pick on one of God's kids. You better not mistreat one of God's kids because you're getting on the wrong end. These are the royals. These are... Don't treat me wrong. Don't talk about me in a wrong way. Now, if I deserve it, that's different. But if I don't deserve it and you're lying about me, you're on dangerous ground. I'm not going to do anything. I don't care. God does. You're messing with one of his kids. I don't need to do that with you. Insert Brandon's message on the tongue right there. Go back. Now back to our message. I still haven't heard that. I heard great things. Join me. John chapter. I'm going to look at one more outside text and then we're going to spend the rest of our time back in verse 9. John chapter 16. I almost didn't do this because, because I come across nitpicky. I don't want to do that. I'm going to throw it out there, okay? Jesus is coaching us on how to pray and how not to pray. And if you notice what he says, I'm going to reread. You're in John 16. Let me reread Matthew 6, verse 6. Let me reread it, okay? Ready? But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Did you catch it? Listen to verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Jeff, you're nitpicking. Verse 23 of John 16, here's the context. Jesus is telling his disciples, guys, you're going to get really sorrowful. And then you're going to be really excited. Why? I'm going to go away and you're going to get sorrowful. But I'm going to come back and you're going to get really excited and nobody's ever going to take away your joy after that. What's he talking about? You're going to miss me for three days. You're going to think I'm dead and it's over. But then I'm going to come back and I'm going to show myself to you alive as a resurrected Savior and you, nobody's ever going to convince you otherwise. You will die for the cause and you're going to do it joyfully. He says in verse 23, in that day, after he's died on the cross, after he's resurrected from the grave, in that day, that's the context, you will ask me nothing. Truly, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive it that your joy may be full. Jeff, you get nitpicky, guys. I am not going to pause and after someone prays what I'm about to say, I'm not going to, all right, now let's pause and let's point out what our dear brother or sister just did wrong. I'm not going to do that. Do y'all understand that most of us have these memorized ways of praying that we learn from someone else and you, you almost have to like unlearn that before you can really start praying? Can I give you two examples? 
Dear Jesus, we come to you this morning. I just took about half of you right there. Dear Jesus, Jeff, are you saying it's wrong to pray to Jesus? I'm not saying it's wrong to pray to Jesus. I'm not saying it's wrong to pray to the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you the normal mode of closet prayer is not directed to Jesus. He could not be more clear. I'm not going to say that nicer because I don't want to talk. Matthew 6, 6, get in the closet, pray to the Father. Who's saying this? Jesus, who knows how to pray, who's coaching us, says, pray to the Father. Verse 9, pray our Father in heaven. John 16, you're not going to ask me, you're going to ask him. Who do you address your prayers to? The Father. Here's the other little phrase. Jeff, you're getting so splitting hairs. I've got them. I, need, I have blind things in my life. I need someone to teach them to me. Here's what someone had to teach me. This wasn't really my habit, but some that are close to me, I hear this. And I want to say something. It's like, no, not my place, not the time. Well, now's the time. While we're here, shotgun it, let the Lord use it. So what is it? Pray, 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 and finish with this little memorized phrase. The good brother, sister in Christ, grandpa, grandma taught you. Thy will, thy name, amen. Now I just took another 20 people. What's wrong with that? Thy will, oh, that's good, that's Matthew 6. Thy name, amen. What's wrong with that? If we're praying to who we're supposed to be praying to, the Father... In the name of Christ. Now, if you're talking to Christ through your whole prayer, incorrectly, if you're praying to Christ, then it is thy will, thy name. But if you're talking to the... Uh, anyway, i got to move on. That's kind of a little pet peeve of mine that, uh, that I started noticing in the mid-90s when I was in my 20s that it's just not right. I'm not going to say it's, it's the wrong. It's not the norm. And if you need to like literally say... I now have to change my prayer. You're going to have a hard time, I will warn you, because you've done it for X amount of years. And we've got to unlearn how to pray the wrong way and learn how to pray the right way. Back to chapter 6 of Matthew. Would you join me? We're going to stay there from here on, Lord willing. Second thought. So the first one's a long one. The second one is a little bit longer as well. And it's this. Jesus says, pray then like this. Got eight words. Here's the first four. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Notice Jesus blends, this is important, he blends familiarity and reverence. Jesus blends familiarity and reverence. When you pray, can I ask you a question? Answer in your heart like you did a while ago when you were checking to see, do I have the signs of the Spirit? What are they? Check your heart. When you talk to God, the Father, what is your tone? What is your attitude? What's your honest approach to Him? Some in here, if you're honest, here's what you'd have to say. God is God. He is high. I mean, I get on my knees. I put my face down. He is so holy and fearful and powerful. I mean, it's God. I am so respectful. That's awesome. But you need to keep that in balance. You know, there may be someone sitting here or watching online right now or a little bit later, and in their heart, here's what they would say. How I'm, what's my attitude when I talk to God? God and I, we're pals. God and I are chill. Careful. Careful. I don't know that you want to be saying I, You may need to change your approach if your honest heart's answer is God and I, we're, we're, we're chill with each other. We're, we're good. Best, you know, best buddies. 
I talk to God about, you know, just, and the whole tone is kind of flippant, give or take. What Christ is trying to say, here's two phrases, words mean things, and the order matters. Our Father, see, there's familiarity. Friends, closeness, intimacy. See, this is good. In heaven. Don't forget in heaven. See, you, you guys are wrong. It's over here. You got to get down. You got to grovel and you got to understand that God's. Christ says, well, let's take both of those and properly blend them together. Familiarity and reverence. Notice, first of all, very quickly, our Father. Can we talk about that part first? Our Father. What is Christ trying to teach us? Our Father means God loves us. I get to talk to my Father. He's good. He loves me. Watch this. He's approachable. Listen. He's, somebody needs to hear this. This wasn't in my notes. I wrote this about an hour ago. Somebody here this morning. Your life is mainly marked by one main struggle. Here's your main struggle. You're a Christian. This is your main struggle. It may be simply because of circumstances. It may be logistical. It may be about numbers. But in your mind, here's your number one struggle. I am so lonely. I feel all alone in this world. There are little times I'm around other people, but the mark of my life is a life of loneliness. If you're a Christian, what Jesus is saying is, you need to get a hold of this concept that God is your Father. He is a real person. You are never alone. You can have a relationship with God that literally dispels loneliness. Your getting through life and feeling fulfilled does not rely on any other person. Somebody here today, I'm in a relationship, but it is so bad. I feel all alone. Christ is saying, you have a relationship with the Father. And there is no loneliness in that. This is a real thing. He is approachable. He is a real person. Bring him into your focus. Talk to him on a regular basis. I want to borrow from a moment this idea of Father. He's loving. He's good. He's approachable. He's a real person. Barclay offers the following. And now I feel like I need to say when I quote Barclay, I am not endorsing everything William Barclay teaches because he's got some stuff that I do not believe and I would not dare quote him on some of those things, but he does such a great job in some other areas, uh, and that's why I use him. So anyway, somebody wanted a set of those. I found out I got quite a little gem, Brother Larry, that you told me to get with a guy, and I caught him, got him at really cheap. The set that I have, uh, you, I don't think you can get them right now, and if you did, it would probably be like 300 bucks for these little, little books. Brother Bill, you have a copy, and so they're really good. Barclay writes the following. So listen, catch this. I never thought of this. He says, missionaries, okay, missionaries, foreign field, new places, never heard about Christ. He says, missionaries tell us that one of the greatest reliefs which Christianity brings to the heathen mind and heart, what's one of the best things that they, they get out of it, is the certainty that there is only one God. I've never thought of that. I was just born in it. I was born in a family that said, there's only one God and this is, this is Him. We serve Him. So this just pushed on me. I never had to go through this. They did. This, is, this, is, this changes their whole world. This is a big deal in, in their world. I'll continue. Missionaries tell us one of the greatest reliefs which Christianity brings to the, to the heathen mind and heart is the certainty there is only one God. Just one. Whew. He continues. It is the heathen belief that there are hordes of gods. Little g. Hordes of gods. 
that every stream and river and tree and valley and hill and wood and every natural force has its own God, little g. This is what they live with. You understand, in their world, this is reality. This is real to them. He says the heathen lives in a world crowded with gods. Still further, here's what makes it so bad. All these gods are jealous and grudging and hostile. He says they must all be placated. They have to all be appeased. They have to keep them all happy. The problem is, he says, a man can never be sure that he has, om- that he has not omitted the honor due to some of these gods. Just went to Greece a few weeks ago. The Greeks, Barclay shared this, tell the story. They have their Greek mythology, and in their mythology, Prometheus was at a time when mankind, this is fake, y'all know that. Prometheus, mankind didn't have fire, but Prometheus gives mankind the gift of fire. Zeus, who's over all the gods, does not want mankind to have the gift of fire, so he punishes Prometheus by chaining him to a rock in the Adriatic Sea to experience the cold of the night and the heat of the day. I'll punish you. These people live in this world. Which one's the most powerful? We've got to find out. Oh, that one's more powerful than this one. I've got to keep him happy, but I don't want to make this one upset. Barclay continues. The heathen is haunted by the fear of a horde of jealous and grudging gods. So then, when we discover that there is only one God and that the God to whom we pray has the name and heart of a father, there's only one, he's a father, It literally makes all the difference in the world. He says we need no longer shiver before a horde of jealous gods. We can rest in a loving Father. Changes everything. Do you have that? You know what we have in this life? Here's what we have. Pain. We have more than this. Several of our folks this week. April man's father died in Florida. Funeral down there. Brandon's father in the hospital in Tennessee. Danielle's father had a heart attack in Minnesota this week. Um, Renee, in our, and just stuff in our office, you know, surgery on her hand. You know what we have in life? Pain, sorrow, question mark. Why is this happening? I don't have all the answers, and we're probably not going to get all the answers. In fact, I know we will not get all the answers in this life, but here's what we do have. I know this. The one who is sovereignly in control of all things, the one who matters the most, that is in control, loves me. It's my father. And he has a reason. I don't know the reason. He has a reason for this. And it's going to end up good. I have that knowledge. I have that awareness that comforts us through all of this very quickly. Let's finish this thought, balancing the two. Jesus says, Our Father in heaven... Quickly, can I share this? God's everywhere. God's omnipresent. There's no place He's not except where He chooses not to be in hell, which is the worst part about hell is that God withdraws from hell. Yes, there's flames and and loneliness and torment and thirst and all of those other things, but the worst is that God is not there. But God is everywhere present, but the Bible is also clear. Listen, Christian, God is enthroned in heaven. And I don't think it's so much that heaven's many, many millions of miles away. I think heaven is very, very near. It's just in another realm. It's in a different dimension around us. We're very near to it. And God is close, but God is enthroned. 
Christ wants you and I, when we pray, here's what he's saying. Hey, you need to talk to your father. Yes, intimate, close, but he's your father in heaven. What needs to be remembered? I want you to remember your father is great. He is holy. He is other. He's high. He is infinitely powerful. He is a fearful being. Don't ever forget who you're praying to. And so Christ is telling us this morning, you need to keep these two things, familiarity and reverence, in a proper balance. I'm going to wrap this up with just a couple of quick applications. Somebody here this morning, this is you. I don't know who you are. Because you had an abusive parent or abusive pastors or false teachers, you really struggle to talk to God as a father. That whole intimate, loving, good, honestly, you struggle. Here's, here's, here's how you think. That's not right. That's just too familiar. That's irreverent. That's not right. I feel for you because you're missing out on a lot in prayer. Your prayers are probably very respectful, but they're very distant. You need to, by faith, take what Christ is teaching. Our Father, yes, I'm remembering in heaven. Some overemphasize the greatness of God. Others overemphasize the goodness of God. And they, they use tones and, and a heart and, and just language, a whole approach that is very just, just mediocre, earthly, treating God as though He's common. Don't speak to God. There are some people that really pray to God, but they're more respectful to their boss than they are to God in their tones. That is totally wrong. Say, so Jeff, you're losing me. Are we intimate? Are we friends? Is, is, is he our close father? Is he our daddy? Like Abba, father's trying to teach us? Or is he this high holy being that is fearful? Yes. Yes. It is hard. What Christ is saying is, that needs to be blended and balanced properly. He's, what Christ is calling us to, Grace View, are prayers that are balanced with boldness. Where do you think you're going? I'm, I'm going to talk to God. <laughs> I'm going to talk to God. Confidence. You really think, I know he's going to hear me. And humility. But I'm going to approach him in the right way. My father's invited me and I will go. Number three. So that's going to take a very high level of faith to keep that in balance. So many people are too common in their approach to God. Man, if they were to ever see God with these eyes and somehow live, they wouldn't talk that way to Him anymore. I'm telling you, guys, I wonder. I wonder how many times the angels are like, what are you doing talking to Him like that? You are so out of line. We need to be right. Third and very quickly, so Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So third thought, and this is the briefest one, God's names are to be treated as holy. God's names. Jeff, is that the main application? We're going to make this as an application of this text. I think it's implied. I don't know that it's the main one, but it is definitely in here. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does hallowed mean? You want to write these down? Honored be your name, consecrated. Sanctified be your name, God. Holy be your name. Set apart in its own category. Consecrated again. Reverenced is your name. Guys, what are we talking about here? Literally the usage of God's titles and names are not to be played with. 
This is not a prayer. Lord, would you please make your names and titles great? Would you make them holy and reverenced and set apart? No, they're already holy, reverenced, and set apart. Here's the prayer. God, would you make your name be recognized and acknowledged and actually treated as holy? Boy, I hope there's no person saved or lost that's, listen to this right now, who this last week took the Lord's name in vain. And here's where we've got to watch. I have to watch this too. When we're praying, if we're not careful, we'll just use the name of God over and over and over, not meaning it. We want special emphasis, special usage. Protect the name of God. It is sacred. Protect the usage of the name of God. Give it a, the highest of high places. So Christians, yeah, we get a little offended when you take the name of the Lord in vain. Why? Because the Bible this is so important. It is the third of the Ten Commandments. God says, I do not hold them guiltless who take my name in vain. They are guilty. If that's part of your habit, you got to cut that out. Just cut and say, God, don't let me. God or Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, Jesus, Jesus Christ. You don't use these in a flippant way. Protect the usage of the names of God as sacred. That's part of this prayer. And then lastly, what is Christ ultimately hitting at, I think, is this forethought this morning. God's name represents him as a person. I, I'm not good at this one. I'm not good at any of these, but I'm really bad at this. I wish I had a better, a better way to just, than just saying it. So listen, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. That person has a good name. It doesn't mean you have a cool name like Jeff, right? Jeff's not that cool, anyway. Doesn't mean they got a cool name. A good name means they have a good reputation. Y'all remember the first Lion King, the original, the good one? Remember that? I can't remember if it was Zazu, Zazu or whatever it was. I think it might have been a little bird. And there's the hyenas. And the little bird says, well, with Mufasa. You remember that? Three syllables. Mu-fa-sa. There's nothing magical about three syllables. But in these little hyenas' world, those three syllables said together is so attached and connected to the king lion, they literally shook. <laughs> say it again. They like being kind of nervous. And they, kind of like some people go to haunted houses. Ooh, say it again. It's like, it's just a name. No, the name represents the person. So hear this. Let's close where the text wants us to go. I mean, for the whole prayer. This is the whole prayer. This is where the whole thing hinges or falls. What does this mean? To hallow God's name means He is to be exalted. He's to be treated as holy, as high, as consecrated, as reverence. Him as a person. He's above everything else. He has first place. Does that describe you? Hallowed be you, Father. Hallowed be your name, you as a person, your whole reputation. We want you. We want the whole world. Can you honestly say... I pray that in my prayers. Yep, Jeff, pretty much every morning when I, when, I, when I get along with the Lord, that's my priority is that God's name be glorified and that he be lifted up all around the world. Or are we honest and go, yeah, that doesn't really describe what, what's driving my prayers. That's what's driving Christ's prayers. This is what he's saying. This is it. 
I'm not inaccurate by saying this, guys. To Jesus, the primary thing in prayer is worship. The primary thing. You know how what we do sometimes? I know, ACTS, adoration, confession, thanksgiving. I got to get through some adoration to get to the good stuff because God has power. I believe he has power. He answers my prayers. So I need to do this little thing over here so I can get to, you know what Jesus says? Wrong, wrong, wrong. Wrong approach. Update. So maybe you need to leave here today and say, I got to cut out the thy name, thy will, thy will, thy name thing. I got to cut out the dear Jesus as my main prayer closet. I got to cut that out. And man, I got to start focusing on God. To Jesus, here's what he's teaching us in this whole text. Closet prayer is the fundamental, the fundamental kind of prayer. Daily fellowship is awesome. Corporate prayer is awesome. Closet prayer is the fundamental. And here's what else he's saying. Adoration and worship is the fundamental, the initial, and the primary component in prayer. Closet prayer is the fundamental kind of prayer. Adoration is the fundamental component of prayer. What Christ is saying is, my people, so Christians, listen, get along with God, really talk to God, and talk to God about God, and really focus on Him, so much so that you start enjoying God. Enjoy God, adore the Lord, lift Him high, let it come from you. When we get along with the Lord, we love Him more, all of a sudden we want to see Him sanctified and glorified and lifted up. Some modern teachers have pulled from some ancient teachers and they've learned this. When we enjoy God, that's how we glorify Him and magnify Him the most. How do you make Him look good? By enjoying Him. Can the angelic world and even the demonic forces that try to come into your prayer closet, do they see this? Well, there's another one that's glorifying you. Or is it there's another one that it's all about them? Which are you? We will offer our praise directly. When we begin and make adoration and worship the foundation cornerstone of our prayer, here's what we'll do. God, I'm offering you my praise. I hope some others are doing it, but God, you're getting it from me. I'm going to praise you for that and that and that and that and just go through his attributes. He deserves it. And watch this. Then you offer him your life. I'm offering you my praise, and I'm offering you my life. And then, Lord, I'm going to offer you all my resources. I just want you to be famous. So if, if I have something that will help make you famous all around the world, I want to do it. You know what this kind of prayer does? It leads us to holiness. It leads us to evangelism. It leads us to missions. People that are worshipful people are people who are going to be strong in missions. Churches that are worshipful, truly worshipful, are going to be strong in missions. Churches that are truly inward about themselves and pray selfish prayers, they're not very strong in missions. They're not very strong in sharing their faith. So I close with this. Closet prayer that rushes to God's presence for adoration just really recenters the whole life. Every day, every time you do it. Man, getting back to here, it's all about you. It's not about me. We'll get to my stuff in a minute. If there's time, Lord, it's about you. God is so great. Here's the message in a nutshell. God is so great that He is to be exalted above everyone else. But God is so loving and so good that though He's exalted above everyone else, He allows all who put their faith and their trust in His Son as their Savior to literally come where He's at, close to Him. Come on up here where I'm at and let's talk and have a relationship. Reverence and familiarity. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Close your eyes just for a moment.